The relationship between science and the public is very complicated, and we're in such a period of sort of our political tribe in general touting how sciencey we are and how those dumb conservatives aren't sciencey, but everyone's an asshole on this. No one actually follows the science. As soon as following the science becomes ideologically inconvenient, people throw the science out the window. It's the same thing with journalism. People claim to value journalism and reporting, but as soon as someone reports something they don't want to hear, they throw the journalist under the bus. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is science writer and occasional, well, more than occasional, culture critic, Jesse Single. If you're a fan of this show, chances are you're also a fan of Blocked and Reported, the podcast Jesse co-hosts with Katie Herzog, who herself has been a guest here twice. Jesse's new book, The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills, takes a series of deep dives into long-held assumptions about society and human behavior. For instance, the myth of the super predator, the so-called power pose, even the concept of implicit bias. We take these ideas as truths, but as Jesse explains, many are based on faulty methodology and shoddy interpretation. He talks with me about all of that, as well as a subject that is not in the book, his research into childhood and adolescent gender dysphoria, and its relationship to the recent surge in young people identifying as transgender or non-binary. This work, despite his very careful methodology, has incurred the wrath of a certain corner of trans activism, mostly on Twitter. And we talk about why he thinks that is and how much it should matter. I do feel like I I have to warn you about the compulsive Amazon checking because it's probably not I, a good it's thing to totally do. Totally unavoidable. It's like especially for the first book there's it's not it's it's inevitable but maybe you want to limit to yourself to like 30 times a day. Well, it's also it, it's set up in such a silly addictive way cuz like 10 copies jump you up, you know. 40,000 spots. It's just at the top, it's very congested, but you move around a lot otherwise. So I, I think I should just stay away from it. Right. I mean, it is like weighing yourself. It's like you drink a half a glass of water and then you weigh yourself again <laughs> and it changes. So congratulations on the book. It's not about the Trump era. So congratulations on that as well. Well done. So the subtitle is uh, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Ills. And it takes on the what's commonly known as the replication crisis, which is a sort of umbrella term for the ways in which commonly held beliefs stemming from supposedly definitive studies aren't really true, either because the studies weren't conducted well um, or the results can't be replicated in other studies. But before we go into the book itself, I thought maybe you could start by telling us uh, what got you into this uh, in the first place, what made you sort of interested in these kinds of studies and where they have gone wrong. Yeah. I mean, my general trajectory was I switched from, or not switched, but partially transitioned from just being a straightforward opinion writer in my twenties to developing a little bit of an interest in like why people feel the way they do. And um, that led to an interest in why people are wrong <laughs> that, you know, sort <laughs> of from a more always non- an, That's always a source of entertainment, why people are wrong. <laughs> exactly. If, and if I, I, mean, I mean that in sort of like a curious, compassionate way, because I just think we all have fundamentally broken brains. And, you know, from there, I just, 
got into psychology and social psychology. And I, I was very lucky to get a job editing a, a then newly launched vertical at New York Magazine called Science of Us back in 2014. And we were just sort of fire hosed with really overhyped findings from you know, university press offices are the worst because they'll send you a press release about a study that just totally exaggerates what what was in it. And, you know, once I had the time and space to really look into this stuff, I found that some of the biggest ideas being sold to the public, often via the TED Talk stage, like often had very little, uh, there was very little there there when you looked into the research. Do you remember any from that time? Like what were the most egregious examples? Well, so there were all these little studies that luckily never got famous um, where you would just read the study and then read or read the press release and then read the study and realize they basically were saying opposite things. Like they'd be like, we found X. And then in the study, like tucked into the 80th paragraph, they'd be like, we didn't find good evidence for X. So it was, it was just like advertising basically. But the first really big one I got into was the implicit association test, which is this test that supposedly reveals your unconscious racism Anyone can take it. You can go to Project Implicit. I heard from someone with some background in behavioral science who basically said, there's not much evidence this test really does anything. And that many months later led to a, I think, 13,000 word piece on New York Magazine's website. And I think that was the first time I tried to sort of really go after an idea that everyone believed in, but that I thought they shouldn't believe in. This is a piece you wrote. Yes. Was, okay. Okay. And how was it received? Uh, very pretty. There's a lot of appreciation, to be honest. I mean, obviously, later I would write some stuff that generated uh, genuine controversy, but people are willing to accept the implicit association test doesn't work. It doesn't seem to be like a tinderbox of controversy. Of course, people try to like drag it into the culture war arena. Like conservatives would would point to my piece and say, "Well, that proves implicit bias doesn't exist," which I, I don't think is warranted because, like, right. I'm just criticizing the instrument that measures it, right. not the concept itself. Right. And the implicit bias, bias test is is it the thing where you look at different faces and there are words associated with them? How does the actual test work? I know it's probably hard to kind of describe verbally. Yeah, not that hard. You you basically uh, you sit at a computer. It says hit I if you uh, see a good word or a white face. Hit E if you see a bad word or a black face. Then those get switched up. And the theory is that like the harder it is for you to link good words and uh, black faces versus uh, good words and white faces or vice versa, the more implicitly biased you are. And the claim was always that like this predicts your behavior in the real world, which is a pretty remarkable claim because it's saying that this test can tell you something about your innermost soul, basically, that you wouldn't know otherwise. Right. And people are so seduced by that logic. This is why people like horoscopes, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I want to I know something about myself that is like very pat and tied up in a bow and can be condensed to a few sentences. Yeah. I also think people like the guilt, to be honest, because like I think mm. we've seen this. There's been a trajectory, especially in like white liberal spaces toward like wanting to feel bad and guilty and tell everyone <laughs> yes. how bad you feel. And I think <laughs> even before that was cool, the IAT tapped that impulse. Yes. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. I, I think it's the new cutting, actually. Like, instead of <laughs> oh, actually, God. well, yeah. Sorry. I mean, it's like, no, you lightly slice your own souls. Yeah. Sort of. Exactly. It's it, without the, without so much mess, you know, it's kind of like self mutilation without the muss and fuss. Anyway. Okay. So let's go through a little bit of the book. The first chapter 
is about self-esteem, which you really go into the history of. And I, I appreciated that because I think most of us associate the so-called self-esteem movement with like a kind of late 60s sort of kumbaya narcissism. But, you know, you mentioned the best-selling or somewhat spurious book, The Psychology of Self-Esteem by Nathaniel Brandon. That was from 1969. But the guy at the center of a lot of what you talk about is someone named John uh, Vasconcellos. Can you tell us who he was and why you um, devoted so much time to his story? Yeah. Um, I think it's pronounced Vasconcellos, but I'm legendarily bad oh, at pronunciation. So well, I'm just... Okay. As a, as a musician, I'm going to say cellos. Vasconcellos, so, <laughs> Vasconcellos. Don, you're going to force me to pull the audiobook on the eve of publication. Oh, no. Uh, no, it's fine. Wow. Um, he, so Vasconcellos, he, he was influenced by Nathaniel Brandon, who was in turn influenced by Ayn Rand and slept with her. We knew that salacious bit. Um, Vasconcellos was this really weird seeker type uh, in the California State Assembly. He you know, we'll just have these weird fixations. And he found the self-esteem literature and convinced himself and later many others that self-esteem is at the root of all these social problems. And he convinced the governor of California and, and the the state to lay out, I think, a few hundred thousand dollars a year to create a commission on self-esteem that became more of like a religious organization than a genuinely serious attempt to understand the social science. Because of course, all they did was claim to have found more and more evidence that uh, self-esteem is a super important thing, even though the evidence all along was not very good. And as, as is often the case, California sort of led the way here. And this idea that to solve all these complicated social problems, like you just had to improve people's self-esteem, including including crime, which is particularly funny because it turns out criminals tend to have high self-esteem. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So the yeah the idea that you're committing crime because you don't feel good about yourself uh, <laughs> that's been debunked. Yeah, or you know, there's obviously some situations where some degree, <laughs> yes. but yeah. Overall, this is not the reason people commit crimes. But yeah, they so everyone started believing this, and and the schools were hit particularly hard. It was just this, like very pat form of storytelling where everything's uh, describable in terms of self esteem. And you know, I, I talk about this very well known social psychologist Roy Baumeister who. Around the turn of the century, he led this effort to look at, look at all this data more scientifically, and they found there was just like basically nothing there. And and what's interesting is a lot of this during a lot of this period, like eighties, nineties, people are talking about this crisis of self esteem among Americans, which is kind of hilarious when you think about it. Because as <laughs> Baumeister pointed out, we we lack many things. We do not lack self esteem as a people, well, especially in the eighties. That is not <laughs> yeah. a decade I associate with uh, low self worth in people's minds. Hmm. Okay. Yep. All right. I mean, I, maybe the 30s. Yeah. Like, <laughs> 30s were rough. Even now. Uh, okay. All right. But like, how this did this become part of the curriculum, like in an official capacity? Yeah. Yeah. It, it you know, a lot of state laws were changed to just sort of write self-esteem in into the education law, often in a way where like, very open to interpretation. I don't want to pretend like this became some Soviet style 
across the land, six hours of self-esteem a day. But a lot of schools did change their practices in subtle ways. Some of them changed their grading. A lot of them had self-esteem like interventions. I remember from kindergarten or first grade sitting on the floor being told about self-esteem being this like balloon that could inflate or deflate. So I think a lot of people of my age were exposed to some version of this in school growing up. Yeah. You know, um, I am a little older than you. So I remember this public service announcement that ran during uh, Saturday morning cartoons in the 1970s. Um, and it was like this little song. It was, it was called the most important person in the whole wide world is you and you hardly even know you. Do you have you, has anyone sung this to you? It's like the most important person in the whole wide world is you and you hardly even know you. And like everybody, uh, in my generation has this song like permanently imprinted on our, in our brains. Like we'll never get it out. (laughs) Now I've done it too. Never gotten it out. So, you know, it's funny. I was looking it up um, preparing for this interview and one of the YouTube comments under the video. uh, And I really think this is from like, you know, the video was like 1972 or something. I mean, it just looks like vintage Sesame Street, like grainy footage, like 70s kids running around. One of the YouTube comments says, there's nothing wrong with teaching kids self-esteem as long as you're also teaching esteem for others, which was happening in these videos. It's not like we were reading Atlas Shrugged to these children or something. <laughs> <laughs> but when in fact, uh, our friend uh, Vasconcelos uh, was uh, reading Atlas Shrugged. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, I mean, do you like do you have thoughts about how this kind of self-esteem sort of baseline uh sensibility might have affected these generations going up? I mean, I want to get more into this a little bit later, but just since we're on this, I mean, do you make a connection between these sorts of initiatives and kind of the way that you know, stereotypically, we we accuse millennials of being uh, overly esteemed on, on themselves, or is that that's a little bit reductive? But I wonder if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, you know, I, I'm a little bit skeptical that any one cultural fad can have that big an impact because, like. Gene Twenge is like a research a social psychologist and a researcher of sort of intergeneral difference intergenerational differences. She has made this claim and and people should sort of seek her out for the strongest version of it. I don't know is my short answer because I just think like the difference between a kid born in nineteen ninety and two thousand ten there are so many other differences like this is a well known problem trying to sort of sort out so uh, so called cohort effects uh I'm not sure I would make like a a causal claim there. It also wouldn't shock me just because self-esteem was such a big fad and such a craze. Like this wasn't the Macarena. This was like a (laughs) thing that lasted for years and years and had serious people behind it. So I'm a little bit skeptical, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of self-esteem, you also devote a chapter to this concept of power poses. Now, my first thought when I heard that term was I was thinking of like the old school executive, you know, this, the CEO photographed from below with arms crossed, like the cover, the cover of <laughs> yeah. the in-flight magazine or something. So, you know, so the cover of, of business. Exactly, guy exactly. So so it's like you're looking up at a statue. Uh, but the ones you discuss are actually more finely tuned than that. Um, so so tell us what they are. Yeah, there's a few of them. I mean, one of them is sort of the Wonder Woman pose, like you stand up straight with your hands on your hips and 
the theory is that by doing that for 30 seconds or a minute, you increase your sense of power and that that will make you do better in like some interview or negotiation setting. And this was treated as a useful tool for women who are, who are running into the buzzsaw of sort of workplace misogyny to help them sort of, um, I don't know, even the playing field a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because you describe also, okay, there's high power poses involve expansive, assertive positions, leaning back in a chair with hands behind their head and their feet on the table. I totally get that. I actually, when I do that, just on my own by myself, I do feel a little bit, I don't know if the world, the word is more powerful, but it does give me something like as opposed to hunching over my desk in a defensive crouch, you know, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. So the question isn't whether it might help your mood a little bit. The question is, there were basically all these claims made about it sort of changing your hormone levels and, <laughs> and making you like that was literally the the first study said it like it, it gave you more testosterone and students uh, were more uh, tolerant of risk in this in this little game they played. A, a problem with a lot of these studies is like it's just very hard to take them from a lab from that very sort of contrived situation and then claim they mean anything in the real world. So power posing is pretty harmless. It's not going to hurt you to put your hands on your hips for 30 seconds if it makes you feel good. <laughs> but this like this made Amy Cuddy, the yeah. creator of the concept, pretty rich. And she had like what is still either the best or one of the best uh, watched TED Talks of all the time. And, and a lot of it was just very overhyped. Yeah, I know. I want to talk about Amy Cuddy, but I just I, I want to make sure people understand. There's also um, there's also the pose where you're leaning forward over a table with your uh, hands or arms spread about and, and spread out a bit in front of you, like your hands touching the table. That seems, I, I to- I've seen that and I can totally picture it, but that just seems weird. And like, that would hurt you. I think that might cause harm. It might <laughs> That's cause like the, chiro- uh, chiropractic the- harm. The hard-boiled, like, old-school detective yelling at his subordinates that they, yeah. need, to, they need to stick to right. the book. All right. Or, like, let's be careful out there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. So so who is Amy Cuddy? And just why, more broadly, do these studies get tr- mistranslated the, the way they do? Is it methodology? Is it just sort of the charisma of the people pushing them? A combination of those things? Yeah, this is this is an interesting case. So Amy Cuddy definitely sold the results of this one study and then some follow-up studies pretty hard. She got a TED Talk. She wrote a book called Presence. And oftentimes, if you look at what she said, it's an exaggeration, or at least uh, these are unwarranted claims as compared to the study itself. So she, you know, in the TED Talk, she talks about these poses can really rewire your brain to make you more assertive. And it, except in the trivial sense that like everything rewires your brain every second, that that isn't really they what they used found. To say that, really... uh, sorry to interrupt, but before I forget, remember they used to say that if you smile, you will be in a better mood. Like I think that again, I remember yeah. from like the seventies and the eighties. Just force your face into a smile, and it will increase your serotonin. Force your miserable, mm-hmm. depressed mouth into a smile, mm-hmm. and you'll yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's that very like self helpy. You have a lot of more control than you think type of uh, ethos that I think is really seductive. Yeah. Okay. Now, and who who is she? Where did she come from? What was it about her TED talk that you think um, so electrified people? She so she has an interesting backstory. When she was uh, 
either before or during college, she was in a really bad car crash, like traumatic brain injury. She sort of had to relearn how to think, basically. Uh, from there, she ended up at Princeton under a, a really famous social psychologist. Then she was at Harvard Business School. That was where she co-authored the Power Posing Study. I could not tell you exactly why it caught on the way it did, other than that, like when you think about all the people out there who consume pop science books and who have some degree of of either precarity in their life. I don't want to – these aren't poor people, but everyone wants to like get that next promotion and make sure you're not going to slip down yeah. the ladder. And here is like a, a Harvard credentialed expert telling you that there's this little thing you can do in, in just a minute that can really improve your odds. I, I can understand why people fell for that. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing too with a lot of the studies that you – and the subjects that you talk about in the book, so many of them were amplified by mainstream, like glossy magazines. Like as somebody who spent a lot of time in the trenches of women's magazines or early in my career, like those editors couldn't get enough of this kind of thing. Like anytime there would be some kind of, you know, studies say that, you know, XXX and it could like you know, be something like if you, you know, if you color your hair in this way, you're more likely to hold your shoulders back a certain way. And therefore we can sell you this. I mean, they loved it. And uh, I wonder like how much of this has to do with media amplification by, by irresponsible journal. I mean, it's not that they're irresponsible. It's just that like, it's, they need easy, easy data like this in order to do the piece that they need to do. Yeah, I think there's like a subgenre of sort of slickly counterintuitive finding that's just catnip to these publications, especially if you can tie it into something like workplace discrimination or some other societal issue. So I don't, you know, I think by it's 2021, journalists should know better now, but I don't blame them for, it would be nice if they didn't just sort of take a Harvard press release and just sort of regurgitate it without any skepticism. But I don't, I can understand why they did that, especially if you're pressed for time and you don't have a lot of scientific training yourself. Well, and what about the actual researchers? Are they like upset with the publications office of the university or whoever the communications person, like whoever is sort of pushing these findings and representing them in a way that's maybe not accurate? Like, is there tension between the actual researchers and the information channels? No, I mean the researchers who get famous and who are willing to overclaim don't don't step up and say no. I mean that's part of the incentive problem is like if you're a psychologist who's going to sternly tell your university press release office, you know, don't overhype these findings, your university press office won't want to work with you and won't view you as like a worthy person to to broadcast out into the world. So it's like the more conscientious you are as a researcher, the less the less you're rewarded. I, I think that's been part of the problem. Wow. Okay. And I mean, often there are serious consequences. So let, let's move into a few of those. You have a chapter about super predators. Um, and again, if people weren't around in the 90s, they might not recognize that term, but it was something that uh, arose in the public consciousness uh, out of just a, a, a spasm of crime, especially crime committed by youth. So so tell us uh, what the super predators were and what you learned about them. Yeah, a, uh, a guy named John DeUlio, a hotshot young professor at Princeton, came up with this idea in the mid-90s. And at the time, especially in the early 90s, there was this like really scary rise in youth crime. 
part of a, a general rise in crime in cities like New York, it, it hit very hard. Uh, we now know a lot of this was connected to the drug trade. It didn't sort of come out of nowhere. But John DeUlio posited this idea of a super predator, which is a, a young person who, uh, by dint of having grown up in morally corrupt surroundings, moral poverty, as he called it, has no sense of right and wrong, is basically a walking killing machine and and just can't really be seen as quite human. And this focused all the fears that had been generated by youth crime in onto this like one idea. There's no evidence to really support that his idea had any research behind it. One unfortunate aspect of our species is like it's pretty it's disturbingly easy to get people to do horrible stuff. Like they can be normal in all other senses of the word word and just like kill someone. Um, yeah. So these were like 12 and 13 and 14 year olds caught up in an increasingly brutal crack trade. And it was reckless violence and horrible violence, but like it wasn't senseless. There was often logic behind it, you know, a, a turf war or whatever. So John DeUlio really, I, I think he contributed to the acceleration of like harsh laws targeting youth offenders by portraying them as not quite human. Yeah. And I mean, this came up again to with, with, you know, Hillary Clinton. I think the, you know, her opponents, especially on the Bernie side, were kind of, uh, bringing up the fact that she had jumped on the super predator bandwagon back in the nineties, uh, when when Bill Clinton was in office, that was something a lot of people were talking about. Um, but I mean, do you have, is there data showing like how many people went to prison who might not have gone to prison because of these assumptions? Like what, what's the, what's the collateral damage from this? I think it, it's hard because the, the super predator concept arose at a time when we were already really ratcheting up so the sort of nineties vogue for imprisonment and for harsh drug laws. But there's a pretty strong case to be made that this made things worse. I argue that also because the super predator was such an evocative meme by 96, 97, by the time there was like evidence that youth crime had plateaued and was starting to fall, I think it took a little bit while, uh, a little bit of time for that, that message to stick because people were still so scared of, of this figure. Right, right. Do you, is there like a a contemporary analog to the super predator? I'm just as you were talking, I was thinking like, is there some version of this? I don't know if it's like the 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 concept that there's like you know that there are men in frat houses who serially rape everybody. I mean, there are those men, so I don't know. Like, is there <laughs> what's the version of it that we're dealing with today? Yeah, I mean, I could see some of that discourse. And then there's like, you know, MS-13, the Salvadorian gang is incredibly right. scary. And, and people have been killed, like not far from me on Long Island. Um, but I think the super predator idea was unique because it, it really took this whole class of criminal and was just like, they're not like us. And they're not just they're not like us in the normal sense of they're criminals, they're worse, but they're really not quite human. And you don't see... Obviously, humans like to dehumanize one another, but this was like a really uh, striking example of that. And it was just based on a lot of misconceptions. And then the most important part of this, arguably, is that they said there's going to be more and more super predators. And by the year 2000, you know, it's basically going to be like RoboCop out there, uh, which right. turned out to be completely false, as they later acknowledged. They were just wrong about all these sort of demographic points, in addition to being wrong about the basic behavioral theory. Right, right, right. So, I mean, is the would you say that a through line in this book 
really has to do with like our people's desire to make sense of what is really a world in which there's not a lot of sense to be made a lot of the time. I mean, it's just like if if we can sort of put these things into boxes and um, I make some sort of diagnosis that feels concise, like it's just sort of easier to live your life. I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, so many of the problems in my book are really, really hard to solve. It's not, you know, the IAT is an attempt to to really address American racism and racial disparities. That's not easy. And if you take it seriously, it's it's really, really complicated. And when you reduce that to implicit bias, and then you reduce implicit bias to your score on this test anyone can take, it's like, okay, this seems doable. And and part of the book's argument is that like at a time when we're pretty paralyzed politically, meaning 21st century, I can understand why people are sort of, in a sense, almost giving up on that and turning to the TED Talk stage. Like this is where our solutions are going to come from. I just, I think that's um, not realistic. Yeah, and you know, on that, let's talk about the chapter about uh, veterans. Positive psychology goes to war. I, I wasn't actually aware of of a lot of this. So so tell us kind of what this chapter is about. There's this tension between um, cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, something called. Uh, PRP, which I'm now not remembering what that stands for, but <laughs> no, let's, okay. let's walk us through that. If you like acronyms, this chapter is for you. <laughs> is that an acronym or it's a, just a PRP doesn't actually spell a word. Acronym, acronym, I think is when it actually spell spells that. a word. Uh, okay. Well, if you, you like letters. Me, right. Well, if you get like the organization that has the perfect acronym, you know that they just, the acronym came first and then they tried to find <laughs> a, an organization to, to make out of it. So yes. Right. This is like maybe the craziest story in my book. And and I it's weird to me that, you know, a few people had written about it over the years, but it was sort of a scandal hiding in plain sight. And it's crazy to me that I get to be the first person to like really give it the full treatment in 2021. The short version is, uh, Megan, you may have remembered we invaded a couple countries in 2001 and 2003. Uh, yeah, I heard. I heard on, <laughs> I heard, I heard I heard on NPR. I think they mentioned yes. it on NPR. Uh, so it turns out that sending kids to war traumatizes them. And a lot of traumatized soldiers by the mid to late aughts were coming back, uh, with untreated PTSD and awful shit happened as a result. There were suicides, there were homicides and the army realized it had to do something about this. And it turned eventually for reasons I explained in the book to Martin Seligman, Marty Seligman, uh, a godfather of positive psychology at the university of Pennsylvania. And what he tells the army is, I have this program called the Penn Resilience Program that is already proven to be effective. We can adapt this to the army and we can help prevent PTSD and suicide. So I spent a lot of time just sort of looking into that claim and, and a couple of things jump out right away. One is that PRP was designed for 10 to 14 year olds in general school settings. So right off the bat, it's like you should have some questions about taking a program for 10 to 14 year olds and adapting it for a military setting, just given how wildly different that is. Right. And yet the, so Seligman becomes the guy, they, they adapt this, they make it a mandatory army program that uh, I don't have a cost estimate. I hope some journalist who does like Pentagon budgeting can get one, but I, it's safe to say probably over $500 million since then has been spent on this program. First of all, there isn't good evidence that the Penn Resilience Program even works among 10 to 14-year-olds. It seems to like help a little bit, but not enough for 
even the program's creator to be confident that it matters in the real world. I mean, the, the analogy there is like, if I told you my mindfulness exercise will improve your happiness by one point on a hundred point scale, you'd be like, well, okay, that might not do much for me in the real world. And then the second thing was the program also like didn't, there was no evidence to suggest this program should be able to prevent PTSD or suicide because it was designed to prevent anxiety and depression symptoms, which overlap with PTSD, but, but don't cause them. So there was like no theoretical reason to think this would work. And, And sure enough, all these years and all those dollars later, there's no evidence it does anything. And and the army just rolled it out without really testing it, without any real thought into why anyone should imagine this should work. And I talked to a couple of like leading PTSD experts who were like, you know, we, we never thought this would work or we weren't consulted on it. It's just when you think of how vulnerable this population is, I, it's a little bit enraging that this was what the army went with. Well, it's insulting. I mean, it feels like putting a, you know, Mickey Mouse Band-Aid on a serious injury. I mean, like, what was the methodology? Was it like a training program? Was it a curriculum? Like, how did, how was it actually implemented? Yeah, so so the PRP um, borrowed a lot from sort of cognitive behavioral principles. So, for example, if a 12-year-old found that, like, if their mom was late coming home, they would freak out that their mom had died in a car accident. You would train them to like sort of work through that idea in their head and be like, realize that it wasn't necessarily rational. It wasn't the most likely explanation. And and one thing they would do would be like, try to get them to flip that in a positive direction. Like, uh, okay, maybe she died in a car crash or maybe she won the lottery and that held her up. And the idea is that this will get kids to realize that some of their thoughts are a little bit more irrational and panicky than they should be and basically calm down. The goal is to like instill kids with these better habits uh, stemming from cognitive behavioral therapy. A lot of this stuff does have evidence from it in like one-on-one therapeutic settings where you're working with someone who already has anxiety or depression or both. The research question was always whether you could have this program administered by just like a teacher to a big group of kids who don't, who mostly don't have a mental health problem. Basically, whether you, it would work as a prophylactic rather than a treatment, that was the big question. The answer appears to be no, that the Penn Resilience Program doesn't really prevent anxiety and depression much. And despite that, it, it is then rolled out to this entirely different population in the Army where there's no reason to think it would prevent PTSD. And has it been replaced by anything more effective? It has gone through some sort of rejiggering and name changes. But last I checked with the Army, which was last summer, they, they said this main component from PRP was was still in place. Wow. And wow. there's an Air Force version. Like, as if that's not enough, there's also there's comprehensive soldier fitness. There's also comprehensive airman fitness. So it, it's Seligman is very good at selling his stuff to the public. It's strange. I mean, it's such a non-sophisticated approach for what is supposed to be a at least you know technically sophisticated body. You know, the, the military. Yeah. You think they wouldn't they wouldn't fall for that sort of nonsense? But hmm. yep, you would think. Uh, Okay, well, speaking of uh, nonsense or thinking, uh, you know, sophisticated military bodies, um, there's this concept of grit uh, that you talk about. And I did not realize that was an actual psychological concept. I thought it was something that Megyn Kelly talked about. Uh, at least she, she talked about it. I, I profiled her once and she talked about it a lot with me. Uh, so what is grit and uh, what's what's good about it? What's bad about it? 
Yeah, so so Grid is this idea by Angela Duckworth, who actually worked uh, under Martin Seligman um, at the University of Pennsylvania. She's she's now a, a MacArthur winning social psychologist. She introduced this idea in the aughts of a new scale for measuring what she called grit, which is for reasons I'll get into, basically just what we would call conscientiousness. So this is your ability to stick to difficult tasks, your your passion for pursuing long-term goals. And she also had a very successful TED Talk and convinced a lot of people that this was like an important new concept that could help explain performance. And her big pitch was, you know, we all think innate ability and intelligence and and physical ability are what matters the most, but but we ignore grit. We ignore this these muscles people can sort of train in terms of, of their conscientiousness and grit. And the problems, there were a couple of problems with this too. Like, I mean, one of them was we already have a concept in psychology, personality psychology called uh, conscientiousness. And it turns out grit is basically just conscientiousness. There's almost no difference between them, except in this small technical sense I explained in the chapter. That's one problem. She didn't seem to have come up with a, a new thing. The other is that in a lot of cases, she sort of overstated how powerful a predictor grit was. So the question is like, you you get someone's level of grit. Does that predict their performance in school or at work or whatever? And the answer is like often it just isn't really a better predictor than stuff we already have. It's apparently in, in many studies a much weaker predictor than like IQ scores or SAT scores. So a lot of the the excitement over this just turned out not to be borne out. Yeah, there's an online test for grit uh, as well. I actually took that one. I was too afraid to take the uh, implicit bias test. Uh, I got, I'm in the 10th percentile <laughs> of grit. I'm completely without grit. No, you're not. I am. That's what you I said. The there's yeah. no way. Well, wait a second. What do you mean by the 10th? I took I took the test and I scored in the 80th percentile. But wait, that's because you're what's, gritty. No, you are super gritty. I don't know what you mean. You are you are like the most conscientious person that I know. <laughs> so I don't see how you could possibly. You don't see you don't you don't see what my apartment looks like right now. Well, no, I don't. That's why this is an audio only podcast. <laughs> I, I don't want to see what anyone's apartment looks like these days. But. uh but okay, but the questions were like, you know, I I always follow through on a project uh even when I lose interest in it, you know, always sometimes never that kind of thing. Or you know, that it, it wasn't quite that. They, they were pretty simplistic questions. It's like, you yeah. know, sometimes I lose interest in something I after a long time I have a hard time finishing long-term projects. But then it's hard to know how to answer them because it's like, well, a book is a is a long term project, but you know you can change course many times and feel like giving up many times and be late with it and all sorts of things. So it's not a very nuanced um, exam. But uh, yeah, I wondered just like, what do you think of the, those sorts of questions? I don't see how you can get any information from that line of inquiry. Yeah, I mean, like it, this does predict some level of something in school and work settings. It's just like if 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 we want to be like robots about it, this is not the piece of information you would go to first if you were had to like make one hire and make sure they were good at their job. I, you know, a, a social science writer I really respect named Daniel Engber made a point that like in a lot of fields, including journalism, you don't want to have too much grit. Like if you pound away at a story where your reporting isn't leading anywhere and you're afraid to let it go, that's not good. If you're right. a startup, if you're a startup bro, you need to be able to jump around from thing to thing and sell when it's the right time to sell, all that. So 
it's obviously true that all things being equal, like people who are willing to work hard will do better than people who aren't. But it's just, it seems like a flattening and an oversimplification of a lot of stuff. Yeah, right. Especially in this era of needing to pivot. The pivot would seem to be at odds with grit. I mean, yes, grit is yeah. kind of the digging it, doubling down. Now, if you're a person who doubles down <laughs> on your bad opinion <laughs> on Twitter, for instance, does that mean you have grit? This is, yeah, it's a little. <laughs> it's, it, no, it's like, but it's so interesting because it's like, what, what, what can any one psychological scale tell us? And the answer is it tells us something, but it's like, it can leave just as much out. And I don't know. I like the fact that I'm willing to jump around from thing to thing. I, I think it's, it's yeah, gained me some level of success in journalism. So I don't, I don't really mind not being gritty. I'll, I'll tout my 10th percentile. Okay. Well, I, the other thing too, like does grit measure, um, I see, I always thought that grit had to do with resilience and I thought resilience had to do with having a thick skin. So is there any, uh, overlap there? Like what, I, what do we make of that? Resilience is like a fuzzy concept that I don't think we have a very good way of measuring. I could see some aspect of a thick skin applying to grit just because like when you receive negative feedback or you hit some roadblock. Um, yeah. So yeah, I could see that being part of it, but but I'm just, um, I don't yeah. know. I'm very much of a jaded on grit at this point in general. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh bias uh you talk a lot about bias the one i the one that leapt out at me i'm familiar with this so uh for a long time there was an assumption that women were discriminated against um i mean many places but among them orchestras um major symphony orchestras that sort of thing uh there was there was gender bias in terms of hiring players and it then they for a long time they thought that if you auditioned orchestra musicians behind a curtain there would be this sexual, this gender bias would go away. They would be just as likely to hire a woman as a man. And they did do this for a long time. They, they did have blind auditions. I think it, it became the standard. Uh, and you say that this is actually not borne out. Yeah, this is weird. I mean, I, I went to grad school and I got a little bit of psychology training in, um, in a public policy program. And they, this they this is such a big deal, this study. Uh, and, um, one guy just dug deep into the data that was right in the study itself and found that there's not there didn't seem to be much evidence that blinding really changed these gender gaps and it was just it was another example of like we accept this stuff as true because it gets repeated over and over and over that one really surprised me uh so yeah i so i mean the other thing is like but why why not blind orchestra auditions why should you be able to see what the person playing music where all that matters is whether they're good at playing music um, why should you be able to see them? So I think there, there's some of these where it's like there might not be great scientific evidence, but it just seems like good practice anyway, right? Because like there's no there's no good reason not to blind the people who, who have to pick who the players are. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. What What's the damage really? Although I wonder if there's something about the way you kind of – comport yourself or hold yourself as a player. I don't know, but I, <laughs> you know, presumably at the highest level, the judges, 
you know, they, they basically know who's in the mix. You don't audition for the Chicago symphony having come directly from the right. Exactly. You know, know Newark, anyway. and I, Newark community orchestra. Yeah. I think so. they can literally recognize like certain flourishes and play styles. I could be wrong. about oh, Absolutely. That, oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I don't know much Ab- about music. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, you know, I wanted to just like ask you sort of more generally, Jesse, like why, what draws you to these subjects? Like it's, you seem like a person who um, is really, really uh, sensitive to and curious about uh, hypocrisy and hyperbole. I, you and I both, uh, I think have, we, we share this curiosity, but <laughs> yeah. what, is there something just about your personality or, or your temperament that really makes you um, so eager to, to dig so deep into these things? Yeah, I think I just I, I'm curious about human frailty. I do think I like controversy. I, I like writing stuff that isn't boring or predictable. And I think a lot of the stuff I wrote earlier in my career was uh, really like like when you were doing the the vertical at New York. No, no, no. Even before that, I was already in my 30s by the time I got to New York Mag. I was just like a very predictable liberal opinion writer for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I wrote some good stuff too, but I I'm much more interested in either why people are wrong or why they believe what they do than in just like arguing they're dumb. And I also like the, the relationship between science and the public is very complicated. And we're in such a period of sort of our political tribe in general touting how sciencey we are and how those dumb conservatives are in science. <laughs> Follow but, the science. Yes. Yeah. Every, everyone's an asshole on this. No one actually follows the science. As soon as following the science becomes ideologically inconvenient, people throw the science out the window. It's the same thing with journalism. People claim to value journalism and reporting, but as soon as someone reports something they don't want to hear, they throw the journalist under the bus. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely drawn to controversy to a certain extent, but I, I'd like to think I'm only drawn to controversy that like reveals something interesting or important about uh, about our weird species. Right. So what would be an example either from the book or just elsewhere of the science uh, not being ideologically convenient so it gets thrown out? Well, I mean, I, I think... Let me think about the best example to use. I mean, the whole, I, I, you know, we don't need to get, in, you don't get into the pandemic really at all. I mean, the whole masking thing, I don't yeah. know if that would be in that neighborhood. Well, yes, this, this this drove me crazy because you have all these public health institutions and experts saying, don't gather, don't gather, don't gather. And then George Floyd is killed and it's like, no, gathering's fine. You know, we got to... Yeah. It seems like there are fewer and fewer public institutions that just have principles. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on like the direction of the ACLU, which I, oh when I grew God. up, was like a heroic organization. I think people, the average member of the public is, is not great at like science or reasoning. I know that sounds elitist, but it's true. But they also can tell when like institutions are full of shit. And I think we sort of have a crisis on that front where institutions are not following the science or not being not having humility about the science and and that worries the hell out of me so yeah yeah you know and it, you were saying earlier earlier in your career you were you wrote just sort of um kind of basic lefty lefty columns and you know i i think some of my interest in a lot of this stuff now is because i did i did a lot of the same thing i mean i i was a little you know i was in my 30s uh, when I was an opinion columnist, and I usually, you know, I'm by nature counterintuitive, and I 
don't try to just slide onto one side or another. But I was definitely guilty of, you know, you're on deadline, you have to write a column that week. And if there's some like sexy study out there, some kind of like, you know, research data that has come out about some topic that would make for a great column. Yeah, I wasn't always very good about uh, digging into it to see how accurate it was and i mean who has the time for that though well back then we had more time than we do now even like i i mean and so i think sometimes uh, to be honest like i think maybe part of the reason that i have seized upon this moment with the these free speech conversations and this sort of thought policing and trying to you know buck up against that i mean i don't you know obviously i'm sure the audience knows about your podcast this is something very you're you're very much in this space uh i wonder if like a little bit of my investment is that i have this kind of like memory of myself being lazy in the past you know early in my career and i don't like it about myself yeah no i i i i see some of that in me um I also worry about like getting too drawn into the culture war stuff in general because like that stuff can really ensnare you when you decide – and this hasn't happened to you at all, which is one of the reasons I like your work. There are some figures who <laughs> – That's why I try to let other people talk and I'm going to uh, right. keep my mouth shut, but it's hard. Thank you for saying that, though. Not everybody thinks that I haven't been ensnared, but okay. No, I mean, uh, look, there there are some people who really like this is all they ever think about is culture wars and how the left has gone too far or whatever. And I – some of that stuff is important and I write about it, but I just think it's very toxic to spend all your time swimming around in culture war stuff because there's often a bigger world out there that you can um, you can also explore and write about. Yeah. And I mean, this is what I keep trying to emphasize to myself and others, like instead of constantly discussing the culture, be the culture, just like participate in it, create things, come up with new ideas and say them um, rather than you know, be, be a creator rather than a critic, but, but that's hard to do. Um, and there is, you know, let, let, let's talk about your podcast. I mean, it is an enormous success. And a lot of the reason for that is people just can't get enough of talking about this stuff. You, you do the blocked and reported podcast with Katie Herzog. You, you talk about it in, a, I think a, both of you talk about this stuff in a singularly intelligent way. So you're, you're, you're doing it as well as anyone can. Um, but it's like people just, they just have an insatiable appetite for sort of owning the hypocrites, you know, online. I'm not going to say owning the libs or owning the, you know, quote unquote, social justice warriors. It's really the hypocrites that you go after. Yeah. I, you know, I, we've been so lucky. We just passed our one year anniversary of the podcast. It, it, something's really resonating there. And we don't just talk about culture war stuff, but obviously, I think we're fascinated by the online world and how it sort of reflects and amplifies human dysfunction. And, and I think people like the idea of like a guide to walk them through some of the stuff without having to dive headfirst into it. So yeah, just, just the, the way Twitter has really, I, I don't know. There are a lot of institutions where it's crazy how big a role Twitter plays these days. And I, you used to be able to say like, well, that's just Twitter. Who cares? But like, yeah, Twitter's a pretty big deal, at least in journalism and academia. Like if, if, a hundred people get mad at you on Twitter, even just a hundred that can cause some serious issues for you. And I think Katie and I, in part, cause we've been at the bottom of those dog piles are, are fascinated by that dynamic. And again, why is it that the leaders of these institutions cannot stand up to this tiny minority of very loud voices? That's a question that I've probably asked 
12 times now on this podcast to different guests, but maybe it should just, this should just become like a signature question because everybody has a little bit of a different analysis. Like it's the emperor really has no clothes. Nobody likes this stuff. And yet we're all pretending uh, that it's the the way of the future and that we should go along with it because it's, we're on, we want to be on the right side of history or something. Yeah. Well, I think, I think so Twitter, like a lot of other social media software is basically engineered to hack our brains in a sense and, and sort of make us feel like it's important and that the social feedback we're getting is important. So I think if you're like some normie working at an institution and you experience a Twitter stream of fury directed at your institution for the first time, it can be very hard to realize that it really doesn't matter. And if you just leave it alone, it will almost always go away in a few days. I I wrote a piece arguing this for New York Mag's website like three or four years ago, but we got to learn to ignore like the outraged people because it's just, they're so loud. I'll never forget. I, I pissed off a group of gamers during this Gamergate thing we don't have to get into. And a bunch of these people on Twitter, my first article about it was in the Boston Globe. A bunch of these people on Twitter are insisting they're going to cancel their subscriptions to the Boston Globe. It's like, <laughs> really? You you random jerks yelling at me on Twitter? You guys are part of the 0.001% of Americans who have subscriptions to the Boston Globe? Right. I, 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 just, I show the receipts. Let's see that let's see newspaper the receipts. <laughs> sitting, on, sitting on your front stoop. I want a photograph of that. <laughs> so much of it is just performative nonsense, and people need to learn to ignore it. And, and it worries me that they haven't learned that yet. But it's like, even four years ago, I can see saying that it doesn't matter. Twitter doesn't matter. But like we have regular people being fired or at the very least suspended from their jobs because of something happens on Twitter. I mean, there was the case of the, the, you know, the guy who was like a gas company employee in Southern California who had his, you know, Hey, I'm sh- I, you guys probably talked about this on the podcast. He was in his truck, he had his hand out his window uh, and somebody behind him thought that his fingers were making the okay symbol, which is like some kind of dog whistle, uh, like yeah, it was pathetic. Know, Yasha Monk wrote con- a really good article about it. Yeah, yeah, it was connected with uh, uh, white supremacy. Yeah, I, I don't even know. Like th- these are just like tiny, tiny little signifiers that are so inside that most people don't know about them. And this thing went viral, and this guy—I don't know if they had his license plate or whatever—this guy got accused of being a white supremacist, and his job, which is like a you know a utility company, fired him. Or at least suspended him. And so if the utility company isn't on Twitter all day, why do they care? It's very weird. It's really weird. I don't understand it. And I, like, I just, all these guys need to do is like say, let's take a deep breath and wait five days and see what the situation looks like then. I swear that would solve 80% of these problems because people get bored and they move on to the next thing. So like, how- you guys really do you have any hope that this is going to change? I mean, Trader Joe's stood up to it, uh, notably. Uh, there was a high school student who uh, started a petition because she thought that the, you know, the some of the the ethnic food labels, you know, they have Trader Mings and Trader Jose's <laughs> for for some of the some of the food was was racist, and uh, Trader Joe's just said, you know, nope, sorry, that's that's how we do things here, and it's funny and people like it, so go away shoe <laughs> well, well which seems to like usually work like no no one was then like i'm that's what's so weird is like the there seems to often be no material downside to ignoring this stuff except 
I mean, this is what's going on in some newsrooms where like certain subjects, if you write about them in the wrong way, the 50 cool kids of Brooklyn Twitter will yell at you on Twitter. But like, you know, Joe Rogan's a thing. Joe, Joe Rogan constantly talks about stuff that, you know, I sometimes I disagree with him, but it's a much wider range of conversations than anything you would see in most progressive media these days. And the country loves it. He has he's a blockbuster success. So I think oftentimes people are making these decisions in a very myopic way. We're like, oh no, the people, our friends on Twitter will yell at us. But like, who cares? How can you produce interesting journalism or writing if you care about people yelling at you on Twitter? But if major publishers will not publish books out of that fear, if the New York Times will not work with certain writers out of that fear, it it's it makes a huge impact. I mean, it spreads out all over everything. And so we are going to get, I guess we're going to get a world in which the, the, the legacy media uh, just has a very narrow bandwidth of, of interests and, and viewpoints and everyone else is sort of like siloed and all over the place. I mean, where do you see this going? I think things are sort of, yeah. I mean, things seem to be headed in that direction. There's, you know, there's still outlets that do good work. I, when the worst stuff in these outlets drives me crazy, but like the time still does good, good work. The Atlantic still does good work. My, my often home base of New York magazine still does. I, I am worried in the long run that when like, when Andrew Sullivan is too far right for New York Magazine or, or Matt Iglesias feels he can't really be at Vox anymore, that's where you're going to draw the yeah, line. That, that's what I mean. I mean, I that's mean, ridiculous. <laughs> and then, well, and then they go to Substack and immediately make much more money. That should tell us something. I mean, uh, right. if you want to turn this into a purity contest, you, you can have a very pure outlet, but one that never produces anything interesting or unexpected. Yeah, that's what I don't understand why the gatekeepers at these organizations and institutions don't just see that there's a big audience there. I mean, I've had conversations with people and like, I'm trying to explain like, no, there are millions of people who want to hear these conversations. They want to talk about stuff with complexity and, and, and I just get sort of blank stares sometimes from people. I mean, I'm not going to name any names, but from people who are like veteran, you know, people in publishing, for instance, and who are smart and have interesting conversations themselves at the dinner table, but don't seem to be motivated to um, take them public or at least be responsible for those conversations being held publicly. It's getting very insane and group thinky, and there's a lot of cowardice that I think hurts journalism. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, to put it mildly. So, I mean, you know, we don't have to to dwell forever on this, but I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about um, your uh, <laughs> your your Achilles' heel uh, in all of this. You wrote um, how long ago was it? Now it was a couple of years ago. Now you wrote twenty five years. It was twenty five years ago. You when you were what like seven? <laughs> you wrote um, a, a cover story for the Atlantic about transgender kids, uh, specifically what sort of treatment options were available, what parents should do if their if their kids announce a transgender identity. It's extremely well reported, absolutely meticulous. This is why I don't believe that you're a 10% on the um on the on the <laughs> grit you. scale, because that there's no way you could have written that and been in the 10th percentile. You know, it, it not it, it very, very empathetic and compassionate towards trans people. There was not a shred of 
quote unquote transphobia. Um, nonetheless, this kind of this this has really um, followed you uh, everywhere you go. The trans community, at least the trans activists. I don't even know what we mean by trans community, but trans activists, especially on Twitter, have just decided that you're some kind of pariah. And, you know, without getting into like, you know, just lamenting all of that, I wonder if you have a kind of diagnosis for of the psychology that informs that kind of response that that propels it. I mean, this is beyond any kind of factual, uh, any kind of response to anything that has actually ever been said. This is like something that is happening in people's brains collectively. Yeah. You know, it's weird. I, this was almost three years ago now and I stand by the piece like completely. It was meticulously fact-checked. We had a couple of trans sensitivity readers. I think there are certain subjects that just become like sacralized. And if you're seen as defiling them, that's like the biggest sin imaginable. And what's interesting is people, a subset of people are much more fixated on me and this story than they are on the right wing legislators actually like making laws that do hurt trans people. And and one of the moves they'll they'll do, which is sort of remarkable, is they'll say that my my piece inspired the Arkansas legislator to to uh, ban youth trans medicine when my piece was very much in favor of youth trans medicine, was just arguing right. we should make sure the right kids get it so they'll benefit from it. Um I can't explain how weird this stuff has gotten. I, I can't. It's just like everything gets amplified and, and recirculated endlessly online. I'm sure this has hurt me in terms of some mainstream editors at the more sort of jittery publications not wanting to run my stuff. But I haven't. I don't have any proof of that. And I also will say that in the three years since my platform has you know, increased considerably. You know, we'll see if this makes it harder to sort of sell a second book or get reviews in some places, all that stuff. But I – there, there's a huge appetite for like thoughtful coverage of these issues. And while on Twitter, it's often a nightmare. I would say, you know, I get, I get way fewer emails than Twitter mentions, but of the emails I get probably 98% positive. Like it's crazy. The skew, the people who care enough to like write an email overwhelmingly support my work. So it's a very weird thing. I don't really like being a character in this, to be honest. And And sometimes I've contributed to that by like, fighting back too hard on Twitter. Uh, but I, I stand by the journalism. I would still recommend this article for anyone, you know, trying to help their kid feel better, who their kid, if their kid is going through uh, questions about their gender. Yeah. I mean, you don't talk about trans issues in this book at all. I'm assuming that, <laughs> did you even consider it or from the get go, was that always just, I'm going to stay away from that. There was originally going to be one chapter on some of this stuff, but I mean, you know this. You can get a pretty easy feel from an editor for like which chapters they think are in pretty good shape, but will need some edits, and with cha- which chapters they think need a lot of rewriting. That chapter clearly, my editor thought needed a lot of rewriting, so I took that as the opportunity to be like, "You want to just drop this? We don't really need this for the book." And he was like, "Yeah, let's drop it." What was the kind of rewriting he was suggesting? Was it was he just like more more numbers, more facts, like? Because it's hard to get numbers and facts with this subject. That's part of the problem. Right. Well, so it, it was less on sort of the the science and the evidence and more I, – I just have some qualms about like the concept of that we all have a gender identity in the first place. I think it's a little bit philosophically confused and I could actually see it like sort of harming kids who – 
who, who are trying to figure themselves out and who are somewhere in between. So it was really a critique of that concept. And that critique has been leveled better by like a, a couple of philosophers. I could point people toward uh, Alex Byrne and uh, Rebecca Riley Cooper uh, in the UK. So it wasn't necessary to the book. It would have, it would have stuck out like a sore thumb. There's already one chapter. The super predator chapter is already a little bit different from the other chapters, mm-hmm. but this would have been even more so. So I, I'm glad the book has nothing to do with that stuff. That would have become the story. Right. But as a science writer, do you know of any sort of scientific data that's being collected around these issues? Because it seems like it's coming out of philosophy departments. Like so much of the discussion about what is gender, what is biological sex, it's not coming from science. It's coming from philosophy, social science. I mean, but I think, you know, if you notice like most of these blowups, you know, on on campus, you know, among faculty anyway, and having to do with curriculum take place in philosophy departments, just because, uh, you know, the other sociology has been so captured by um, identitarianism that philosophy seems like the one place where there's still some sort of debate and discussion but it's not like a it's not being taken on by science or or medicine it is very hard to study the subject at the moment because anything that suggests the answers are more complicated than like transition is almost always good or hormones almost always help or puberty blockers almost always help uh there's going to be a huge backlash uh, one woman tried to advance our understanding of the subject, uh, Lisa Lippman, by writing about this this concept of rapid onset gender dysphoria—that's a whole other thing. But she, her, you know, University Brown basically apologized for yeah. putting a press release out for her study. It was subjected to this strange process where they quote unquote corrected it. But then I reached out to them. And I was like, "So, what are the inaccuracies you're correcting?" And they said, "No, there's no inaccuracies. We're just correcting it." That would never happen for a study pointing sort of in the other direction, as it were. So. The problem is I, I I think these conservative laws are terrible, banning youth trans healthcare, but like the 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 UK's National Institute of Health and Care Excellence just came out with this big sort of review of the literature showing we don't really know anything about puberty blockers. Like, and, and that's a really fucking big deal. And it's crazy to me that anyone who claims to care about trans and gender nonconforming kids would not think it's a big deal. That we don't know much about the drugs we're giving them. I mean, it's it's outrageous that that the response to this is to be mad at the BBC. And if you go online, you'll see that is a response, rather than to be mad at the researchers who aren't doing the work of figuring out if if this treatment that's been going on for well, puberty blockers have been used forever for like precocious puberty. Well, that was what I was going to ask yeah. you. But I mean, puberty blockers they have been used forever for medical necessity. And is there any evidence that they've been harmful? I think there is some evidence they cause some problems, but a, a lot of the problems they might cause, as long as you're not on them too long, aren't a big deal. This is a very different use case because you're not taking someone off puberty blockers and then having their natural puberty kick in as it would. You're then putting them through the other sex's puberty with exogenous hormones. Right. And so you, we can't say they're reversible in the same way because we just don't know and we have so little data. I think these laws are horrible because like if you ask around, all the major medical institutions do think that kids with bad dysphoria should go on blockers. I think that's the best bet. I, I think we don't always have access to perfect medical information. Sometimes you have to take the treatment that's like a little bit experimental. But 
the lack of curiosity about this and, and the willingness to shoot the messenger when the messenger points out this, the data suck and you're putting kids on what are experimental drugs, um, the climate is ridiculous now. And as I pointed out a day or two on ago uh, on Twitter, I, I don't think any non-conservative American outlet has has run anything on this UK finding, despite the fact that we're in the midst of like a white hot debate over puberty blockers in Arkansas. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. And on the ROGD thing, the rapid onset gender dysphoria, that's considered not only controversial, but in some circles, like a form of hate speech to even utter it. And yet we're seeing classrooms of seventh grade girls where all of a sudden there's there's five kids announcing transgender identities in one class over the course of three weeks. I mean, how can you not say that rapid onset gender dysphoria is a thing? It's just like, do the math. Yeah. I mean, so in cases like that, I think it depends because there's some kids who just come out as trans, but they don't actually have gender dysphoria. So, so one of the interesting questions here is like, okay, let's say, 10 kids in the class come out as non-binary and then a year from now it'll be something else and a year from that like that's what kids do they experiment right yeah um that's not a big deal what what would be a bigger deal is if they actually say they have these physical symptoms that need to be alleviated with blockers and hormones so part of the confusion here is like obviously there's some social influence just among teenagers what what area of teenage life is immune from social influence. But is the influence just like saying I'm this identity or is the influence actually interpreting what you're feeling as gender dysphoria? And we may never find out the answers to these questions because you're just not allowed to study them anymore. Right. And that's a good point too. Maybe it's the term gender dysphoria that's messing that up. Like what if it was rapid onset trying out being the other Identities. gender. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot I do think a lot of it is harmless and most kids don't go on blockers or hormones. I'm just worried we don't we don't have the framework for an informed conversation here. Yeah. And do you have any um uh thoughts about why we're seeing it more often now with uh girls transitioning into to males cuz you know traditionally it was the other way around for for centuries there's the, the transsexual has as we used to call it, has more typically been uh, male to female. But now we're seeing something very different. I don't know. I'm um, There's a couple things. It, it could be that historically guys were given less wiggle room to be girly. So they were more likely to sort of feel like I'm really a girl because I can't act like a girl. The tomboy right. has always been a thing and has always been accepted, right? Yes. Yes. So it could be that in some sense, this is just sort of natal females with dysphoria, like catching up and, and, and making it closer to a 50, 50 split. I do. I'm also sympathetic to the idea that there's something going on here with like misogyny and puberty and, Dude, you know, I can't imagine what it's like to be a 12-year-old girl, obviously, but a 12-year-old girl in this online environment where any discomfort about puberty and your body, someone online will tell you like, huh, have you considered you're not supposed to be a girl? I think anyone who says that that that's never happening or that that wouldn't be sort of a a seductive idea to girls is, is sort of crazy. 
Although, I mean, don't let me mansplain this. I, I, I take it you're sympathetic. <laughs> you're sympathetic to this too, right? Well, I, well, I mean, I've said this a lot. I, I think that the, the 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 lane is narrower for female expression now than it used to be. So when I was growing up yeah. in the seventies and the eighties, being a tomboy was not only acceptable; it was cool. Being a girly girl was not cool. So there was just there were a lot of ways to um, to ex- express yourself. And still know that you were a girl. And I, you know, I think that that it's sort of, it started to constrict in the, in the early aughts, the Disney princess phenomenon and just this kind of, you know, ex- hyper, hyper femininity and hypersexuality with online pornography yeah. and the sort of raunch culture. That's sort of my like, you know, line on that. But, um, you know, obviously there are a million factors. We need we need to be able to study this. We need to be able to ask questions about it. And I hate the way just asking questions is is always sort of the charge that that the, you could only have a malicious intent if you're curious about how kids understand gender, versus the people who are just like, yeah, give them give them whatever medicine they want. Those are supposedly like the the caretakers and the allies. That doesn't make any sense. And I I just I hope the conversation gets less insane. Well, and do you hear from parents who say, what do I do? How much of the mail that you get about this is from parents? Yeah, I've gotten a lot of emails like that. The clinicians featured in my Atlantic story continue to get emails about this. I was just checking in with them about something else. And there's like a steady stream of of emails. These are not emails from parents. I shouldn't say that. They are mostly not emails from parents who are like horrified at the prospect of having a trans child. They're emails from parents who just don't really know what to do because this happened very suddenly and parents know about their kids' lives. So like if your 13-year-old natal female daughter has never really expressed any dysphoria or or any of the stereotypical markers of dysphoria her entire childhood and then seemingly overnight she does feel this intensely – how could you not have some questions about that if you're a half-decent parent? And and when these parents go online, they're told that they're bigots because to believe in anything like ROGD means you're a bigot, means you hate trans people, means your daughter's going to kill herself or your son or whatever the case may be. And I, I find that so bad. I, well, I just – yeah. The suicide uh, hostage maneuver is unconscionable, I think. I mean, where did this come from? The idea that if you don't support your your child making a gender transition, the child is going to kill themselves. That's like, where did this come from? Why? The fact is that I think there are more suicides um, for people after they've transitioned. I mean, this is sort of like a causation versus correlation where they where they, you know, do they have mental health issues? And part of their attempt to deal with them was to change genders. And then when that didn't work, they end up, you know, being more likely to commit suicide or is it like, why can't we even look at these things? It just seems so basic. So, so my understanding is that for people with dysphoria who are like properly assessed and and have dysphoria transitioning does, I think it does make them better off and less likely to commit suicide. The problem is a lot of these studies took place in settings in like Amsterdam and Sweden, where there's a little bit more of what activists would call gatekeeping. I do not think these positive results would apply as much in situations where, as you say, there's kids with like severe other comorbidities and clinicians aren't allowed to like ask questions about what's causing what. I just think you'd be likely to see much worse outcomes and the like the US healthcare system is just a wild west on this stuff like there's there's states where it's impossible to find any gender clinician and then there's states where 
you know, people are very eager to help you transition and it just varies so much. But, but overall, we just, this isn't, especially with youth gender transition, it's not a professionalized area. We need to have much better standards. Right. And I mean, just one last point on this and then we'll, we'll move on. Why do you think it is that the, the trans activists on Twitter are so extreme? I mean, to me, they don't represent trans people. They are their own entity. And there's like a constellation of anxieties and probably mental health issues and cultural tendencies, all sorts of things. And it is somehow manifesting in a way that's being presented as the trans experience or the trans community. But it's it's like its own thing. And why can't we separate those two things out? The, the, I get these emails that make me feel so bad from people who talk about like the trans activists or the trans community, this or that. The, the stuff you see online is not in the same sense that the 50 most uh, active online black activists or Zionist activists or BDS activists do not represent those movements. People shouldn't get this twisted. I, I, I hear from trans people who are just want to live happy lives as trans people. That is all they want. They are not like, well, they're not even political. It's identity is not a political position. I think people forget that. Well, it's also, and, and to the extent they're political, it's about they want access to health care and they want housing and non-discrimination law. All the stuff that 99% of people on our side of the aisle agree on. There's this like, there's been this tumblerization of, I mean, of everything where it just becomes very philosophical and these very niche issues dominate online conversation in a way that that isn't helpful and very rarely do they have much to do with like making sure people are clothed and fed it's just very weird what sort of people online who do statistically tend to be wealthier and more educated what they care about versus what sort of the average person cares about and this is this is a broader fight going on in liberal politics i think where Joe Biden's message was very different from like Elizabeth Warren's and and it should tell us something that he won so handily, I think. What are you hoping will change over the next few years in the journalism world, in the world of uh, social psychology, just just the way that we gather information and process it? We've had a really tumultuous handful of years here. Do you see um, the pendulum swinging? What do you what do you hope for and what do you fear? Yeah, I, in my own world, we're in this weird in-between space now where like people like myself and Katie can just sort of like hide out and do fine in these these siloed ecosystems. I would love to keep a foot in mainstream writing and continue writing a lot for New York Magazine or The Atlantic or other outlets. It does feel like it's getting harder and harder to write interesting things for them and I'm worried that some of these trends are only accelerating and um it's increasingly the case that if you like like we were just talking about the puberty blockers debate, you're not going to find like careful science journalism about this, unfortunately, in the Times or a lot of other outlets. Uh, the BBC has done a good job, the Times of London, but these issues are just sort of verboten in, in the American context. So I don't know. That worries the hell out of me, especially as a science writer. Um, at the very least, it is a good time to be someone with an established audience willing to pay for your work. I can't complain about my situation. I just worry about 
25 year olds who are skeptical and curious. I don't know who the hell they're going to write for, how they're going to make a living. So, well, um, I think it's a great book. It's, it's really, really rigorously, um, reported and, um, it's, uh, it's a substantial, it's a substantial book. So I hope it gets the, the, uh, the attention that, that it deserves and, uh, that I feel like, you know, if this were, if this were, uh, five years ago, uh, this would be all over the place, <laughs> so, all over the mainstream media. And maybe it will be, uh, and then yeah, too early by the time we'll we see. have this conversation. Yes. Um, but, uh, it's, it's really good. So Jesse single, thank you so much for speaking with me on the unspeakable. Thank you very much, Megan. That was my interview with Jesse single. His new book is The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. He is a contributing writer to New York Magazine and has written for The Atlantic, Boston Globe, Slate, and Reason, among other publications. He is the co-host with Katie Herzog of the Blocked and Reported podcast and writes regularly on his Substack, jessiesingle.substack.com. That's Singal spelled like Singal, S-I-N-G-A-L, but pronounced single. You've been listening to the Unspeakable Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. If you join at the $10 level or higher, you can get $10 off your first purchase of new Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. That can be found in the Nuance store of the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. Please join me next week for another guest who I'll announce very soon. Until then, thanks for listening. Stay nuanced. Strive for super nuanced. Just trying out a few sign-offs here. Blinded by love and worlds apart, it's a new season of 90 Day Fiancé the Other Way. TLC is shaking up Sunday nights as all the drama heads overseas. Cheating scandals, culture clashes, and even a devastating hurricane won't stop these six couples from following their hearts. With everything on the line, can their love go the distance? 90 Day Fiancé the Other Way, every Sunday at 8, 7 central on TLC. Set your DVR. It's the Home and Auto Bundle Extrava Festa Save-A-Thon, the annual year-long event where you could save big by bundling Home and Auto with Progressive. So big that we're kicking things off with fireworks! A monster truck battle! A fighter jet flyover! And it wouldn't be a party without the Home and Auto Bundle Extrava Festa Save-A-Thon dancers! You can't really hear them, but trust us, they are working it. So come for the fun and stay for the savings. Only at Progressive's Home and Auto Bundle Extrava Fest to save Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now for amazing savings. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. 
Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW.